Our scripture reading for today is Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The word of the Lord. Do you experience any kind of opposition as you try to faithfully follow Christ? And if so, what form does it take? The Philippians believers did. They lived in a proud Roman colony, fiercely devoted to the emperor, who was to be called Curios, or Lord. They, of course, worshipped Jesus Christ as Curios, and so their neighbors would have been suspicious of them as not being fully loyal to Caesar. Paul doesn't give us a lot of details about the kind of opposition that the Philippians are facing. He talks about your opponents in verse 28. In verse 30, he says that they're having the same kind of conflict that he has. And so they probably are being persecuted for preaching the gospel, as he was. And that's led at least one commentator to uh, entitle his book on Philippians as uh, a manual for preparation for martyrdom. Uh, That these may have been people that were uh, preparing to face a heavy price for following Christ. Now, Christians living today in in Sudan or Syria or North Korea uh, face similar opposition opposition as they try to follow Jesus faithfully. Most Americans are not in the same situation. And so one of the challenges when we read a text like this is to kind of put it into our context to think about, well, what are the ways that we experience opposing forces as we try to follow Christ. Um, We live in a post-Christian culture now, for the most part, that is increasingly cynical and suspicious of of, of faith. And uh, the culture that's emerging affirms very different values than uh, the values cherished by, by believers. And we don't always notice when we are being assimilated into this new and shifting culture We probably don't run the risk of being beheaded for our faith. We do run the risk of being like the frog in the kettle. You probably remember that story. A frog is put into a kettle of lukewarm water. The heat slowly rises. The frog doesn't notice until he boils to death. That may actually be the kind of opposition that we face, a more subtle, more insidious kind of pressure. I remember I was driving a missionary to the airport once, and, and I said, uh, as he was getting on the plane, I said, I just feel for you having to go back. And, and he said, uh, no, um, 
I can't live here anymore. Uh, and he was going back to a country that had a tremendous amount of, of uh, physical persecution, but he said he felt it was more spiritually dangerous for him to live here. So in tonight's passage, Paul is uh, giving instructions to believers who are trying to live faithfully in a culture that opposes Christ. And he has introduced himself in the first part of Philippians 1. Then he went into that wonderful section about how he finds joy in prison. And now he's going to give some instruction to believers from verse 27 all the way to chapter 2, verse 18. We're going to look at just 27 to 30 tonight where he gives instruction about living faithfully even when you're being opposed. And everybody has different learning styles. Uh, in this letter particularly, we're, we're kind of going slowly and paying a lot of attention to the words themselves. You might find that bringing a Bible or, or having a one on your app uh, helps you in, in studying, uh, unless, of course, you're a baseball fan, and then you should not look at your app uh, until um, the series is over. Uh, Paul starts off, he says, only, and in the Greek, it, it's, a, it's a unique word that says, there's really one thing I want you to think about. So as you're living in a, in a culture that opposes Christ, there's one thing that I want you to think about. Now, what's that one thing? Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, this sentence in the Greek, this three, three lines in the Greek is one sentence, and it's kind of a train wreck of a sentence. It just goes all over the place. It's very difficult to translate. It's very difficult to follow. It's very difficult to outline. But this much is clear. This first verb governs the whole sentence. Everything in the sentence follows after this verb. And there were two Greek verbs for to live. One is a much more common word that just means the manner of your life, the way you go out your life. The Greek word that Paul uses here is a technical term from Greek philosophy. And the Greek philosophers use this word to describe how a citizen should function in the polis, how a citizen, citizen should function in the Greek city or kingdom. And there's this enormous literature of their greatest philosophers that talked about how humans flourish best when they're functioning in a certain way, in, in being good citizens, and, and this word was a technical word used to describe that. And so what Paul seems to have in mind, he's applying it to the church, and he's saying, I know you are in a Roman colony. I know in that Roman colony, even though you're thousands of miles away from Rome, everybody is paying attention to being a good Roman citizen. And it really was uncanny. I mean, we're way down here in Greece, and if you went into that Roman colony, you would see uh, Latin names on the doors, you would, you would hear people addressing people in Latin. You would see magistrates uh, clothed as they would be in Rome. Everything about this little colony was to show we're a good citizen of Rome. And so what Paul seems to be saying by using this word is, you need to behave as citizens of another kingdom. You need to live as if your citizenship was in another place. And then he describes what that citizenship is. He calls it worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, you are citizens 
of the kingdom of the gospel of Christ. You, you are people that have been transformed, that have been adopted in, that have been grafted in, that have immigrated in, whatever you want to say it. You are now part of this different kingdom. And even though you live in a Roman culture, you need to be grounded, first of all, in the reality of a gospel culture. He says, only. Monon, this is the most important thing. As you live in a culture that opposes Christ, remember who you are. You are citizens of the gospel kingdom. And that means that you have begun this journey, begun this process of transformation by which Jesus Christ has saved you from your sins, come into your life through the Holy Spirit, grafted you into His body and His very self, and you are now living out of oneness with Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. Not that you're saved, now go live well, but that you're saved and Jesus has put His own life into you that you may live with and in Him. So the one thing that we need to remember as we live for Christ in a culture that opposes Christ is that we are citizens of this other kingdom. I'd like you to think just for a moment. There's this idea here of living a life worthy of that kingdom. And I think one of the things that Paul is saying is, As people watch your life, can they tell that you have dual citizenship? As people watch your life, is your life an advertisement of a better story? Is your life proclaim your allegiance to another person? Is your life testify in any way, even when you fall and fail, to the hope that you have in Christ? Is your life worthy of the gospel? One of the things you might think about tonight, even as you prepare to come to the the table, is, is, is what area of my life is not a good advertisement for the gospel. What part of my life does not reflect well on my Lord? And you might think particularly of things you do when no one looks. And as you come tonight to the table, confess that. We call that repentance. And repentance leads to forgiveness and the filling of the Spirit, and the empowerment of Christ to help us lead in a better way. Now, the rest of this uh, long sentence kind of unpacks that. Paul goes on to say, he says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, remember, he's in prison, 
He wants to go. He thinks he's going to get out. He's not sure if he's going to get out. The Philippians want him to get out. And so he's saying, look, guys, I still want to come. Whether I come or not, this is what I want to hear about you. I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's a beautiful collection of words. I'm going to read it again. I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He's saying, if you want to live in a culture that opposes you, you've got to stand firm together. And these are military terms. And if if we could put that slide up, he's probably thinking of this. Uh, Those are Roman soldiers. And that was a a particular uh, formation that they would take with them into battle. Uh, where they would uh, link their uh, shields together and over, and uh, it would protect them from the enemy's arrows. Um, If, of course, one of the shields got disconnected from the soldier next to them, it would create an opening in the line, and and, uh, the formation would fall apart, and everyone would be at risk. I think that's probably the metaphor Paul is thinking about. So Paul is saying, if you want to live faithfully in this culture, you have to stay together. (laughs) The only way you're going to survive is by staying together. The only way you're going to be safe is if you stay together. And we know that was easy for the Philippians because they all were alike. You remember, if you were here the first time we started this series, they had this crazy formation that you find in Acts 16 and 17. They've got people of different races, different colors, different social classes, even different languages in this little church plant. They were about as different as you possibly could be. And and yet Paul says, I want you to stay together. I want you to stay and stand as one. Well, I took an informal poll this week and I asked a few people, I said, where do you experience the most opposition as a Christian? In your Christian life, where do you experience the most opposition? You probably can guess the answer. The answer was from other Christians. (laughs) That's not the answer we hoped for, but that was the number one answer in my little poll. And it seems like the enemy knows what he's doing. And I remember this old war movie where the American GIs were all in this foxhole and and somehow the the bad guys were pumping uh, propaganda in through the radio or something like that. And the propaganda was getting into the heads of the GIs and they were starting to argue and fight and and become divided. Uh, And then the enemy came in and, and, and tried to conquer them. And I thought, boy, that is really how our our enemy uh, works against us. He gets us fussing about what's going on in the foxhole and takes our eyes off of the mission. And uh, before we know it, we're in trouble. Unresolved conflict in the body of Christ is not merely unpleasant. It's spiritually dangerous. Could we have that slide back, Bruce, if... It's uh, the, the irony about the way this uh, formation works is that even if the first two guys over on the left trip and fall out and divide, they're not the only ones affected. The whole formation falls apart. So the guy in the very back 
becomes vulnerable to. Well, that's why it's so important that we do the hard work of forgiveness and reconciliation. And, and again, just keep it up a moment longer. I, I'd, I'd like you to just think for a moment, family, is there a brother or sister with whom you once walked side by side for the sake of the gospel with whom you are estranged, with whom you've broken fellowship? Now, I know there are some circumstances that you can't control it, and you've done everything you can. Romans, I think, 15 says, be at peace with all men insofar as you are able, and I understand that. I'm not trying to throw a bunch of junk on you. But if you pray about that this week, and it's just real clear who that person is next to you, and you know that the formation is broken, that you haven't forgiven, that you're not reconciled, I ask you to begin with forgiveness and then pray about reconciliation. You know, they're not the same thing. And sometimes you forgive people and you just let it go. Sometimes, particularly if you want to walk with them closely again, you forgive them and you go and you work on reconciliation. But you've got to forgive them. You've got to start there. Well, then Paul continues his discussion of what it means to live as a good citizen in the gospel kingdom. He said, look, I want to hear that you're standing firm. And he says, I want to hear that you're not frightened and in anything by your opponents. And that's an interesting Greek verb. It's another rare verb. It referred to an uncontrollable stampede of startled horses. So the idea is that they've been spooked and they they spring into chaos. It's in the passive tense. So the idea is don't let yourself be overcome with fear. Don't let yourself be intimidated. Don't let fear come into the camp and create panic. Don't live in fear. Don't let the powers that oppose Christ intimidate you. A life worthy of the gospel is a life lived in faith and in not fear. I was talking with a young woman a while ago, and um, she's deeply devoted to Jesus Christ, active in his service, very ambivalent about the church. And I asked her why. And and, and to paraphrase what she said, it was a fascinating discussion. To paraphrase what she said is, when I go to church, it seems governed by fear. She said that the, the pastor is afraid that we've lost the past, afraid of what's going to happen in the future, afraid that my generation is not going to be able to take up the baton. And essentially she said, look, I've got enough fear in my life. I don't need to go get more at church. Fear is not the best way to deal with opposition. Faith is. Paul gives two reasons why we shouldn't fear the forces that oppose Christ and his work in the world. Um, 
He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So he says to the Philippians who may well be facing martyrdom, soldiers at the door. He says, look, a united, firm, consistent living out of the gospel of Christ will be an omen, a sign, a demonstration of the future to your opponents. Your faithfulness in light of persecution will be a sign to you that you'll be saved. We're living, obviously, in a little different situation. If Paul were here today, maybe he would say this. When we live by faith and not fear, we show the world that our story is the one that is true, that leads to salvation, that leads to healing, that leads to God. And we remind the world that the lesser stories of greed and envy and hatred and violence and selfishness only lead to destruction. And then he gives a second reason why they they shouldn't give in to fear. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. God has given them the high privilege of suffering for Christ. And he says, look, the opposition that you're facing right now, instead of making you afraid, should give you joy because you are actually suffering for and with Christ. And this suffering is an extension of the suffering Paul himself had at Philippi. Now, I know that in Philippians, Paul is is speaking about living for Christ in a world that opposes him. He's in jail. He's about to experience martyrdom. Most of us aren't suffering like that. But there are other ways, maybe more subtle ways, yes, smaller ways that we can suffer for the sake of the gospel and do suffer for the sake of the gospel. I think of a mother trying to faithfully love her mentally ill child. I think of the cost of living generously in a consumer culture. I think of a couple fighting to save a difficult marriage. I think of a single Christian who says no to a relationship because of their faith. I think of the costly practice of forgiveness. I think of the difficult work of reconciliation. I think of the sacrifices made by our church's leaders. When I walk down the hallway at Tuesday night or Monday night, and it's 9 o'clock, and I look in the library, and there are six of you praying over an interview with a with a nominating committee, and you're going to be there an hour longer just for us, just for him. I think about those of you that lead small groups and other ministries and and how the souls you shepherd bear heavily on your mind and you think about them in the night. You can't give them off your heart. I think of teachers in our public schools who teach for Christ. I think of politicians who govern for Christ. I got a text from one this afternoon who just said, I'd ask him how I could pray, and he just said, uh, let me care more about what Christ thinks of me than what the people do. 
I think of business leaders trying to live for Christ and all the pressures of the marketplace. I think of painters and poets and dancers and singers clinging to a, a dream of being God's creative voice in the world when all the voices around them tell them to shut up and do something practical. I think of mothers and fathers raising two-year-olds and juggling careers. In all these good works, we are opposed, if not by a soldier with a machete, then by the hidden dark powers that work quietly through our social structures and our own hearts. So we suffer. But our suffering must not lead to fear. For we suffer for a great story and for a great Savior. Let's pray. Thank you.